So our subject for this uh, fall semester, we're calling this series Courage and Chaos, and we are using the book of Daniel as our text because if anyone ever demonstrated courage in chaos, it was Daniel. You know, if you've been with us in this study, that in 605 B.C., his nation, the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, was conquered, uh, was invaded by Nebuchadnezzar. And it actually says in the opening verses that God gave them over to Nebuchadnezzar because of their unbelief and because of their refusal to obey God's word and refusal to listen to the prophets for hundreds and hundreds of years. So they were sent into captivity for 70 years. And Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were teenage boys somewhere between 14 and 17. We looked at that last week. It was a chaotic time. Their, their nation was in absolute chaos. When you're given over, when you're invaded, when you are transported to a new nation and to a new city, and they were enrolled in a uh, the Nebuchadnezzar School of Government in Babylon for a three-year period of time. They were these young guys were part of the royal family. They were in that group, and they were being uh, because of their gifts and their skills and their intellectual capacities. They were being um, they were being re educated, if you will. They were being indoctrinated uh, in regard to a new culture with new gods. By the way, we, we've heard the term over the last, how many, couple of decades of multiculturalism. The real issue with multiculturalism is not the actual people. It's the gods that they bring with them. And cultures have gods. Daniel and his friends, as we saw last week in Daniel 1, were given new names that fit the Babylonian gods. And so it was a complete program, a three-year program, to steep them in Babylonian culture and education and history and in their religion so that they could leave behind the things that they had been taught and embrace this new approach to life. That's chaotic. And you can imagine what it's like to have the Babylonian army come in and take stuff out of the temple and you're leaving and Daniel would never see his homeland again. Unbelievable chaos. What's been happening in 2020 is, is chaotic. And we're seeing things that we thought we'd never see in this nation. It's happened quickly. It's happened swiftly. It continues to expand exponentially. And the reason that is it is expanding exponentially is that God has been forgotten and ignored and this is what happens to a nation when they depart from the word of God. We're going to look at Daniel again tonight in a very specific context 
But before I get into Daniel, we'll be in Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 through 16. Even before I read the text, because we're in such chaos, and we're seeing anarchy, and we're seeing lawlessness, and we're seeing looting, and we're seeing burnings, we're seeing uh, the destruction of property. It's, it's utterly out of control. I want to begin tonight by giving you four ways that God restrains evil. won't take a lot of time on this, but it's just sort of a backdrop as to how God has designed society to work. So, first of all, number one, there is to be individual restraint. When we speak of individual restraint, we're speaking of the conscience. Last night, as we were going to bed, I set the alarm, put in the four digits, and you've got 45 seconds, you know, to get out and all the whole thing. You know that drill. And at about 41 seconds, I wondered if I left the garage light on inside. So I thought, I've got time, and I opened the door. Well, I didn't have time. And... <laughs> So, you know, the siren goes off, and, and then about 60 seconds later, I get the call, and yeah, we're fine, everything's good. That's sort of what conscience does. What conscience does is, conscience is an internal alarm system that God puts in every human being that uh, goes off, that has a little siren, and whenever we violate God's moral law, it goes off inside of us. And we know that we have broken God's law. You say, well, what about people that don't have God's moral law? What, what if what, what, people that don't have a Bible, people that haven't heard the gospel? Well, <clears throat> they too have conscience and they too know God's moral law. In Romans chapter 2, Verse 14, Paul says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, and we're speaking of the moral law of God here, when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, they do instinctively the Ten Commandments. So you've got over 600 laws in the Old Testament that were given to Moses, and they break up into three categories. You have moral law, civil law, ceremonial law. You know, how many turtle doves you bring into the temple and all of that. The ceremonial and the civil does not apply to us because we're not Israel. But the moral law does apply. So this is speaking of the moral law of God. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So, the law of God is on our hearts, and when we violate the moral law of God, if you're somewhere, you know, out in the the jungle somewhere, one of those tribes that's not been reached, and you get mad at your, you know, your uh, neighbor across the path, 
and you decide you're going to ambush him and kill him, you know you have violated the commandment of God. And if you read Romans 1, they know that God is there because God's written the truth of himself on their hearts, and they observe God through nature. So it goes on and says, so they are without excuse. So when we violate the moral law of God, conscience is the alarm. Now here's the deal with conscience. We, we hear the phrase, let conscience be your guide. Not necessarily because conscience can become twisted. Conscience can become hard. Conscience can become um, withered. In 1 Timothy 4, in 1 Timothy 4, Paul instructs Timothy about false teachers that are in the church. He says this, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means, watch this, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So when you're seared in your own conscience as with a branding iron, um, your conscience is burned over. I've used this illustration in here before, but it fits. I was probably seven, eight years old, and on a Sunday night in our church, we had a missionary come from Africa, and he had a ministry to lepers in Africa, and they put up the movie screen, and he showed some pictures of his work among the lepers, and it was heartbreaking, and I'd never seen people like that before who had lost their fingers and their hands, and their faces were distorted, and it, it was it was. It, it just made you sick. You felt so bad for these people. And I went away from that as a little boy thinking that leprosy was a skin disease. But I found out later that leprosy is not a skin disease. Leprosy is a nerve disease. What happens if you're in an African village and you're walking into town barefoot and you, you step on a piece of glass and you've got leprosy, first stage leprosy, you just keep walking, and it's not until you get into town and somebody says, hey, you got blood hemorrhaging out of your foot. Because you see, you didn't even know there was blood because you didn't feel any pain because your nerves are dead. Or you pick up a, a pot over a fire, and you thought it had only just been put on, but it had been there a while, and you grab it with your hand, and you go back over here, and as you're walking over, the flesh is dripping off your hand. You don't know it because your nerves are dead. Conscience is not only an alarm, conscience is a nerve. And you've all had the experience, I've had it, where we will sin, violate the moral law of God, and it's as though the Holy Spirit just kind of right on the nerve of conscience. And what we want to do is keep that nerve sensitive to the Spirit of God. That's very, very important. We do not want to develop a conscience that has been seared. I remember when I was in college, I would drive to hear a, a guy teach several hundred college students, and he had a national ministry, and best-selling author, 
excellent teacher, and I'd make that trip. It was probably 100 miles coming and going in Los Angeles. So that took a while. But I, I loved going to that study, and I got to know him and met his wife and his kids and had dinner with them a couple of occasions. And I was 20, 21. He was early 40s, and I thought, that's what I want my life to look like. I'd like to do what he does. I'd like to have a family like that. And a few years later, when it came out that this excellent Bible teacher was uh, a serial adulterer, it was stunning. But uh, he was. Not one, not two, not three, but a whole trail. Been going on for years and years. And there was another gentleman who worked with him, and they had worked together for 15 years. And I remember talking with him and just, just saying, I'm having a real hard time believing this. And he said, I understand. He said, I, I, I didn't believe it when I first heard it. But you have to understand something, Steve. He's a pathological liar. He looks at you and lies and never flinches. What happened to him? He became seared in his own conscience. So in 1 Timothy 1.5, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal of our instruction. So we're all sinners. We're all born sinners. But we come to Christ. We hear the gospel. The Lord pulls us to himself. We're born again. We're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away. All things become new. And we're followers of the Lord. And now we begin, and, and we're babes in Christ, and now we begin the process of growing up in Christ. That's why we're studying our Bibles, so that we can grow. And so the goal of what Paul did, and that's what Paul would do. He'd preach the gospel, people come to know Christ, and he wants to see them grow in Christ. He says the goal of our instruction, what we're shooting for here, is love from a pure heart and a good conscience. And a sincere faith. Look at verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. And we don't know what the prophecies were, but Paul did, and he's bringing him up to encourage young Timothy. That by them you may fight the good fight. That's a phrase we use often, fight the good fight. Well, how do you fight the good fight? 19, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I have delivered over to Satan that they will be taught not to blaspheme. There are two components to fighting the good fight. The first one is keeping faith. Keeping faith is being in the scriptures. And, and <clears throat> I, I've mentioned this over the last few weeks. In this time of upheaval, in this time where God is judging nations, and make no mistake, he's judging the nations, judgment begins with the household of God. And he is purging out false professing believers out of the church and exposing them. And just about every week, I hear of some 
guy with some prominent ministry that I've appreciated, perhaps recommended some of his books, that, and then it turns out, well, the, you know, there's a backstory here, like the guy that I was going to listen to when I was in college. And it's not made up, it's actually, this is all true. And as I said to his cohort back when I was in college, I said, Bill, how can he, he's such a strong Bible teacher. He said he is, but he's a pathological liar. And I haven't known it until the last few months. See, he was so strong in the word, keeping faith. How do you keep faith? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing what? By the word of God. So you keep faith by being in the word. And the guy was in the word. But to fight the good fight, you're not just in the word, you keep a good conscience. So when the first time he checked out on his wife and got with whoever he met with and slept with her, did the Holy Spirit ping his nerve of conscience? The answer is yes. What you want to do is respond, confess your sin, run from your sin, run to Christ. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you want to take care of it. But the guy didn't take care of it. And he covered it. And then the next woman, ping. The next lie, ping, ping, ping. And what happens is you become seared in your own conscience as with a branding iron. This is individual conscience. But God uses conscience to restrain evil in the world. Secondly, you have parental restraint. Parents have a responsibility to restrain their children. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about the discipline of children. Other passages in scriptures do as well. But for instance, we have Proverbs 13, verse 24. He who withholds his rod hates his son. He, um, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Now, Let's get this in context, okay? And you already know the context. We're not talking about here of child abuse. We're not talking about beating a child until they have, well, we're not talking about any of that stuff. That's, that's sinful. That's not what the Lord has in mind here. Uh, what, what the Lord has in mind is inflicting consequences to train an evil heart. Now part of the problem we have with the whole concept of spanking is that we have a lot of Christian people, quite frankly, a lot of young Christian people who don't believe their children are little sinners. They believe everyone is basically good. Everyone's basically good. Everyone is not basically good. Everyone is basically evil. The heart is desperately sick and wicked, Jeremiah says. Who can know it? Can the Ethiopian, Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Then you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. When we're just on our own, we're going to do evil because we were born sinners. We're not sinners because we sinned. We're sinners because we were born and we were all in the loins of Adam. 
The whole human race was within Adam. And when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden in Genesis 3, sin came into the world, and when sin came into the world, with it came death, and we were in the loins, and each successive generation, you have little children that have to be restrained from the evil that's in their heart. And what God says is, I want fathers to discipline their children when they're young. I, I can remember my mom would get a, go out, and she'd make me go out. And we, we had some trees go out, and I'd get a little switch, just a little sucker. And I'd, I'd go like that, and she'd come back, and I had to strip the leaves off, and then she'd take that thing and go. Actually, no, she did. Right, right on the butt. That sucker just stung. And, uh, yeah. And then she would say, I know this hurts me more than it does you. That's in the Bible, I think. <laughs> Actually, it isn't, but it does hurt parents. That's why parents don't do it today. But you see, you have to do it to restrain evil in their little hearts. You don't give them a trophy for sinning. You don't give them a participation trophy for sinning. But this is what we tend to do right now. Everybody gets a trophy for anything. I'm sure the Antifa parents are giving trophies at Christmas <laughs> or cars or whatever. Uh, you have uh, Proverbs 19, 18, which says... Discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. So it's one thing when you have a, a, a little child, and I can remember not only did my mom discipline me, my dad disciplined me. And my, my dad, they, you know, my dad loved me, he'd die for me, he'd do anything for me. But my dad uh, had, a, had a belt and I'm the oldest of three boys, and as my dad used to say, I come home at night and I line them all up and I spank them because I know they did something wrong. <laughs> Everyone laughed at that except us. But my, my dad, I mean, he loved us, but he disciplined us. He didn't discipline, I, I shouldn't say he loved us, but he loved us and expressed it by disciplining us because he knew it was his job to restrain evil in our hearts. Discipline your son while there is hope. So if you've got a kid in high school and, you know, they're getting older, what do you got? A year or two before they leave? You better discipline them. If, if they're down a wrong road, if they're going down this path, I, I've told this story before and I've got my son's permission, but we lived quite a ways out when we moved out there and wasn't developed like it was now. Some, I don't know. 25 years ago, something like that. It was country. So I had this old Jeep, and I'd let John drive his brother to school. And, uh, but we started seeing some... He started changing, and he was covering stuff from me. But every once in a while, it would come out. And so <clears throat> the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. That's a good concept for discipline. Um... We, we had this principle that if you were obedient, you'd get more privileges. If you were disobedient, privileges were taken away. 
And so John began to get on a path, and I began to see some behavior we hadn't really seen before. So at a certain point, I had to take some stuff away, trying to get his attention. But it didn't make it much of a difference. So several months later, I had to get a little more severe and take some more stuff away. And then it kept going. And then, oh, probably after about a year's time, he came home from being with a friend. And he looked around. And he goes, hey, Dad, where's my Jeep? And I said, yeah, that's, that's not your Jeep. That's my Jeep. He goes, yeah, right. He goes, where's my Jeep? And I said, I gave it away. And he said, he didn't say anything. He, he couldn't speak. Um, he was stunned. He said, you, you gave it away. And I said, yeah, there was a family that needed a vehicle, and so I, I gave it to him. He said, Dad, is this, is this his privilege responsibility thing? I said, oh, you're very astute. <laughs> he said, Dad, he said, Dad, Dad, he goes, that's, that's just so extreme. I said, you've got an extreme. He said, but Dad, that's, that's just over the top. I said, you've gotten over the top. And you know what? I can't let this go on, and I won't let it go on. And we never had to get to this point, John. But let's do a little history here. And I just went through everything. I said, we never had to get here, but you would not comply. And I have a responsibility to turn you from a boy into a man. And I cannot permit this, and I will not put up with it. Well, how, how long before, I, how am I going to get to school? I said, there's a bus stop right down there. A bus stop? He goes, Dad, I'm a senior. He said, ah, you'll be the biggest guy on the bus. <laughs> now, that's true. That really happened. And it's funny now, but it wasn't funny then. But I had to discipline him, discipline your son while there is hope. I had to get a hold of him and get his attention. And this is how God works with us. Hebrews 12 says, for a believer, if you've never been disciplined by God, you're probably not a believer because every son that God has, he disciplines. And it goes on and says, discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. What an understatement. Yes, this is not joyful. But it's necessary so that you may be trained by it. The purpose of discipline is to be trained. And when we learn a lesson, God lifts the discipline. We do the same with our kids. You see? So what you've got, I was kind of joking about it, but every night we watch the nightly riots, looting, anarchy, all this. Um, that's being allowed. It's interesting the other Day, I saw a picture of 16 people who had been arrested the night before, I think in Portland. And I couldn't believe they arrested them. I mean, there must have been some kind of, they had a glitch. They actually arrested protesters. They're not protesters, they're anarchists. But they arrested them, and I thought, what went wrong in Portland? Uh, my gosh, they're arresting people. And what was interesting is they had the pictures, and they were all white kids probably 18 to 30-ish. I wonder how many of them had college degrees. When I think it was in Seattle, some kid threw a brick, hit a cop, 
and they ID'd him, and uh, he was 17, and I saw on the news him walking into the court with his parents, who were uh, fine, upstanding-looking people dressed to the nines. But you see, if a parent doesn't restrain the child, you move to the next level of restraint, which is governmental restraint. That's number three. Romans 13, verses 1 through 4. Romans 13 talks about the role of government in restraining evil. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Sometimes you got a good ruler, sometimes you got a bad ruler. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Watch this. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For government is a minister of God to you for good. Uh, we have some founding documents in this country that are under attack, but they're pretty good founding documents because you've had people from all over the world trying really hard to get into this country because there were things available in this country that you couldn't get in their countries and it all had to do with the laws and where the laws came from. Now, we weren't perfect, never have been perfect, never will be until the Lord returns, but it was better here than anywhere else. Uh, there's actually a phrase that's in our founding documents that uh, it is important for government to provide for domestic tranquility. Do you recall that? Do you look around America and see domestic tranquility? No, you, you look around and see domestic lawlessness and anarchy. Why? Because government has abandoned their responsibility before God. Government's job is to restrain evil. The first job of government is not to pump the economy or to give all kinds of benefits for free. The first job of government is to provide safety and to provide peace and to discipline those who do evil so that citizens can go about their lives and be productive. It's called domestic tranquility. Verse 4, it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It's a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So we have police officers, we have county sheriffs, we have all these different um, agencies which keep the domestic tranquility. But what has happened is that there is such a spirit right now of anti-authority, even from government officials. And I don't need to say much about this because, I mean, you're, we see it every night. Those government officials, not only do they not deal with anarchy, they're anti-authority. I don't know if you guys saw this a while back, 
but they had some demonstrators in Austin, downtown Austin. And they're, you know, they're getting all revved up and you're getting, you know, pumped up and they're going to go for it. They're going to destroy Austin. And the camera suddenly swings down the street and here comes um, the mounted patrol of the Austin Police Department. And, he's, and they're just walking their big horses. I mean, they had some stud horses. And they're just all in formation and they cover the entire street. And they're just walking. And uh, it broke up fairly quickly. And it didn't happen again. Number four, there's spiritual restraint. And spiritual restraint is what happens when we are born again, when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we hear the gospel, we are pulled by the Holy Spirit to Christ, and we say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. And uh, we're given a new heart, and we're transformed from within. So I had a guy at the noon Bible study uh, he walked in, and first thing he said to me, just out of the, he didn't say hi, he didn't say anything. He says, he said, have you ever heard of progressive Christianity? And I said, yeah. He said, I never heard of it until this week. And I said, yeah, progressive Christianity is liberal Christianity. It means they don't believe the word of God, but they still want to be called Christians. And he goes, yeah, I mean, this is crazy. I mean, they're, they're everywhere. I said, yeah, they're everywhere. And they're having a lot of influence. I said, yeah, they are. Like Rob Bell like Richard Rohr, uh, like Brian McLaren. And they're progressive Christians. They're sometimes called red-letter Christians, which means they just, they just follow the words of Jesus. You know, in the Bible, sometimes they'll put the words of Jesus in red. So I don't really like what Paul says. We ignore that. We, we, it's just what Jesus said. Well, the problem is what Paul said he got from Jesus. I mean, if your publisher is going to put the words of Jesus in red, your whole Bible ought to be red because it's all the word of Christ. So what they do is, instead of getting under the Bible, under the authority of the Bible, what they do is they stand over it and they edit it. I run into this every week. Every week of Christians who are taking the most absurd positions and they have their platform and they don't know they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, Isaiah 5, we've quoted that the last few weeks. Woe to you who call good evil. And evil good. See, we've got Christians who can't tell the difference between good and evil. And so they wind up defending evil. And they call what God says is good, and they say, oh, no, that's bad. Hebrews 5, for everyone, uh, verse 13, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. Not accustomed to the word of righteousness. You know what that means? They study their Bible to try to make it say what they want it to say. What happened here in Hebrews 5 Everyone who partakes only in milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. You don't read your Bible, you don't study your Bible, but solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, watch this, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good 
and evil. You read your Bible, you're not going to have a problem discerning between good and evil. You lay aside your Bible, you stand over your Bible, you're going to have all kinds of moral confusion. And you will call evil good and good evil. What does that have to do with Daniel? I'm hoping there's some application. And there is. Let's go to Daniel 1. There are some real practical lessons for us out of this section of Daniel, but I had to set it up. So in Daniel 1, verses 1 through 7, we read about him and his buddies being transported in the indoctrination classes and, you know, the, the Ivy League NBA program they were put into and all of that. Verse 8. But Daniel, now remember, we're talking about a 14, 15, 16-year-old kid, all right, and his buddies. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. Now, let's just stop here for a minute. He's being indoctrinated with his friends. And Daniel's a part of this, and he's listening, and he's taking notes, and he's probably studying hard and all of that. But you see, um, his heart was committed to the Lord. And while all this is going on, he's still guarding his heart, for from it flows the wellsprings of life, Proverbs 4. So he's in this program. Verse 8, Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. So you're saying, so wait a minute. Daniel is taken, he suddenly got an issue, and it's the issue is with the food? That's exactly right. I mean, you got all this other stuff, you got the politics, you got this, you got that, and, and he's worried about food? Yeah. Why is he worried about food? And th- this, and, and he realizes, he realizes that this is a big deal because they got this system, they've got this course, they've got this degree program, they, they got it down to the details even of nutrition. Now God granted favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials, and the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why, for why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. So not only is Daniel facing an issue, but he appeals to the commander that I cannot do this. And the guy basically says, hey, listen, you're, you, this could cost me my head if we do this and you guys don't pass the test. Then Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in the matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter, means healthier, obviously, 
than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine which they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. Um, what's the deal here? Well, what the deal is here is Daniel's conscience. What's the first restraint? God has given us a conscience. The alarm goes off when we violate God's moral law. Um, I know you've memorized Leviticus 11, but let's go ahead and turn there anyway. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. So for Old Testament Israel, God gave laws to Moses as to what they were eat, to eat. There were over 600 laws that God gave. Those laws are um, summarized in the Ten Commandments, and then Jesus summarized them in two in the New Testament. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But within the, within the Old Testament law, as I've said, there was civil law, there was ceremonial law, and there was moral law. We are not Israel, we are the church. There's a distinction between the, the church and Israel. And God has a plan for both. Um, in the book of Acts, Peter was at, I think, Tiberius. He had a dream. And this great sheet came down from heaven with all these unclean animals. And then the Lord said, eat. And he said, Lord, I can't eat. And the response was, don't you call unclean what I call clean. And he suddenly realized, wait a minute, God's changing things up. Because it was a new covenant. Uh, but in Leviticus 11, and there are 47 verses. And Leviticus 11 is all about the kind of meat that you can eat and not eat. The Lord spoke again to Moses and to Aaron, saying to him, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, these are the creatures which you may eat from all the animals that are on the earth. And then he starts talking about the animals. Um, he talks about the camel, verse 4. He talks about the chafin, the rock badger, which you can see in Israel, the rabbit, the pig, goes on and on, all the way down. Then he gets into um, he gets into birds, beginning with verse 13. Uh, it's summarized in verses 46 and 47. This is the law regarding the animal and the bird and every living thing that moves in the waters and everything that swarms on the earth to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the edible creature and the creature which is not to be eaten. So, God gave these young men instructions and when that food was placed in front of them, an alarm went off in Daniel's conscience. Now, did he make a big deal out of it? Did he get a petition? Did he? No, he just went and talked to the one who was in authority over him and asked, and God gave him favor because he did not want to disobey his Lord. Uh, he was in very difficult circumstances that potentially had very, very negative uh, consequences. But this was a matter of conscience. And he was careful to obey the word of God. That's what I'm trying to get across to you. And he was surrounded by pagans. And I, I, I am sure, reading between the lines, that 
when it became known to the others in the program that Daniel did not want to eat the food, did you think he got some peer pressure? Come on, man. Come on. It's no big deal. It's just food. When, when a culture breaks down, there's always tremendous pressure to ignore and violate the word of God. Now, we're not dealing with food right now. We're dealing with other issues. Let me make two observations about Daniel's situation in Leviticus. In Romans chapter 14, this whole idea of food comes up again because the best deals on meat was at the Costco in Jerusalem. It had another name. But they had these temples where, to false gods where they would offer sacrifices, but they didn't sacrifice all the meat, and you could get cuts of meat at the butcher shop, which was attached to the temple. And they were the best deals in town. So some Christians would go down there and buy meat and say, man, did I ever save some money? That's great. But other Christians thought that was terrible. They would not go in there. There's no way I'm going in there and buying meat because that was offered to idols. And so in Romans 14, Paul is talking about matters of conscience where scripture does not, that scripture does not specifically address. There are matters of conscience where one believer will be checked by their conscience. Another believer will have the freedom to do it. Paul says, let each man be fully convinced in his own mind and don't judge one another. And then at the end of Romans 14, he makes this statement, and this is worth pointing out because it certainly applies to where we are right now. Verse 23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. So here's a principle for us as New Testament believers. If, if there is an issue that comes up in your family or at work and your conscience goes off, the alarm goes off, and it isn't something that is specifically addressed in Scripture, but your alarm goes off, if you can't move ahead and do that in faith, it's sin. In other words, if, if God doesn't, if an issue comes up and you're not sure how to proceed, and there's some discussion in the family about an issue. Let's say it has to do with um, how do you handle when someone in the extended family is in a gay relationship? How are you going to handle this? Uh, Christmas is coming up, all of these different things. What, you know, and families get divided on this stuff. What are we going to do? How are we going to handle this? Um, it's very uncomfortable. Does scripture tell us exactly how to handle that? All of these issues, well, what about Christmas? Do they come in for Christmas? I mean, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So how do you handle this? Do I go to the wedding or do I not go to the wedding? If you can't go to the wedding out of faith, in other words, if your conscience is the emergency brake is not released and you go ahead and do it, it's sin. You've got to follow the dictates of conscience as the Spirit of God works in your life. And there might be an opposing opinion. 
uh, this, this stuff is very interesting. We're not dealing here with, with meat and shellfish. We're dealing with other issues in this culture that didn't even exist. They weren't even issues five years ago, 10 years ago. Now they're issues. So let me give you two observations out of Daniel. Number one, he resisted the pressure to compromise God's command. He resisted the pressure to compromise God's command. And if you hold on to God's command, you're going to get pressure and you're going to get heat in this culture. From those, not only outside the church, we expect that, from those inside the church who are quote-unquote progressive Christians. Number two, he resisted the pressure to conform God's command for personal convenience. It would just be a big deal if I just went along and didn't create, you know, and you got someone close to you, maybe your wife, saying, honey, you know, don't, you're always the guy who makes a big deal out of things. Well, maybe you are, and maybe you're the only guy. But if it's based on scripture, why would you cave? What's your authority? Now, we're loving, we care, we want the best for them. This isn't an issue where you're yelling and the voices are raised and all of that. That doesn't accomplish anything. But if it's, but you gotta decide who is your God, and you gotta decide who is your authority, and you get to decide if you're going to be a God-pleaser or a man-pleaser. And it gets extremely uncomfortable. And it's always, <laughs> when there's pressure to conform, God's command for personal convenience, it's always easier. At least, at least it looks Israel. Uh, it looks, at least it looks easier. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By the way, how does your mind get renewed? By being in the Word of God. But if you're never in the Word of God, you can't discern between good and evil in the first place. So someone in the family needs to be a rock that is built on the rock. You speak the truth in love, but you speak the truth. You just don't let it go. When it comes up, you gotta decide if you're gonna be a Daniel or not. Three principles here that we can think about as we walk away. This might be in your family, it might be at work, it might, I don't know where it is, but we're all dealing with it. Here's number one. Small compromises of conscience always lead to big compromises. Small, small compromises of conscience always lead to big compromises. This, you could say, reading in Daniel, that's a pretty small deal, you know? I mean, what kind of meat I eat here? But see, it, 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 it was a big deal. It was important. Well, in the whole realm of things, that's pretty small. God said it was pretty important in Leviticus 11. So who are you going to follow? Who are you going to serve? The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may strongly support them. And God gave Daniel favor. So if, if, it, if you're being asked to compromise a biblical conviction, the path of righteousness is to say no. 
I will not compromise. We follow the government until the government tells us to disobey God. And when the government tells us to disobey God, we say to them, as you find in Acts, you decide whether we should obey God or you. But we're obeying God. And then you take the heat and you take the consequences. And in this culture, the way things are going, you could very easily wind up in jail. Maybe you saw the videotape out of Moscow, Idaho, where Christians who were gathered outside, just no big deal. And there's another group across the street, they're gathered outside, but who do they arrest? And put in cuffs, the Christians. This is what's going on around us. And it's where we are, and it's chaotic. We need biblical courage to be a Daniel. Second principle, integrity in small issues leads to integrity in big issues. This, uh, Daniel was a kid in chapter 1 of Daniel. But in the last verse of Daniel 1, where it talks about the rule of Cyrus, Daniel's probably 90 years old. It, it, it's, it's looking out over the panorama of his entire life. This is an issue when he was a young boy. But he was going to serve the Lord until his late 80s or 90s. And you see, God had something in mind for him and his friends, which leads me to the third principles. Third principle, which is God tests his men privately so that they might be trusted publicly. God test his men privately so that they may be trusted publicly. And the rest of Daniel's story is really about this same issue repeated over and over and over again. Will you conform? We want you to compromise what God has said we want you to do it, and if not, there will be negative consequences. It's the same issue in Daniel 1 that he's going to face for the rest of his life. So God will test you privately, and then you will be trusted publicly. That's how it works. That's where we are. It's a new day. It's a new age. And with God's grace and with a firm grip on the sovereignty of God and the plan of God, we can be his men. And we can dare to be Daniels. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Give us the courage and give us, give us the wisdom. And I pray even as we drive home tonight that we might ponder in our hearts what's going on in our lives and I was going to ask that you would show us if we're making any small compromises, but actually we already know if we're making small compromises. Help us to uh, repent of that and turn from it and trust you and trust you. That you've got our back. Let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their soul to a faithful creator in doing what is right. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.